0: Listening to Religion and Socialism, a podcast hosted by DSA and the Democratic Socialists of America, specifically through its religion and socialism working group. I'm Sarah New, and together with my producer Devin Brisky, we conduct deep dive interviews with religious activists and thinkers on radical politics and faith. Today we have for you a really wide-ranging, insightful interview with Jay, or Julian Forth. He's a graduate from Duke Divinity, a Director of Homeless Outreach at a nonprofit in DC, and previously he was the Executive Director of Festival Center, a faith-based space for organizing. I would also consider him to be a theologian, and uh, he also does a lot of organizing. I met Jay at a conference earlier this year where he presented this incredible paper linking this book called The Making of the Indebted Man, an essay on the neoliberal condition by Maurizio Lazzarato. So he presented that paper linking this book with Jonathan Edwards' sermon um, on sinners in the hands of angry God. And uh, it was super fascinating. And I I went up to him and said, I would love for you to just kind of give your same spiel on my podcast. So we talk about um, his theological ideas and how indebtedness is connected to the precarity, which is connected to... Evangelicalism. Um, we also talk about what it's like to grow up with black Jamaican immigrant parents, tenant organizing, why queerness should not be uh, an identity, or at least just an identity, which is a hot take, um, everyone should listen to. And I, I must say, I don't think I've really met anyone who's been able to connect so seamlessly to threats and themes from racism to queerness to capitalism to the gospels. And I, I hope and I trust you will enjoy this conversation. I'm recording on Skype and I'm recording my phone. Um, thank you so much for uh, coming. I guess we're not coming. To agreeing to speak with me, Jay. I'm
1: looking forward to our conversation. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I'm excited about this.
0: Yeah, I feel like you're a person that has kind of different hats or different uh, identities or different sort of like things you care about and do and move around the world. So. It might be a lot to ask, but if could you just give yourself, give our listeners just a kind of introduction into maybe let's start with the work you do, um, a little bit about the kind of issues they care about, your your politics, you know, religious affiliation, what have you.
1: Yeah, yeah, will do. Um, So I uh, grew up outside of D.C. and that's where I am now, and I've been within the city proper for about ten years, Um, and. Yeah, my work kind of oscillates between activism, nonprofit, and faith communities. Mm. Um, so yeah, when it comes to activism, I've been involved with what's called the Washington Peace Center, which was a multi-issue grassroots um nonprofit. Um their goal was to support activists of all stripes with educational and material resources. Um I've been involved, let's see. Um Uh, with doing tenant organizing also as well in the city. So that uh, worked directly with residents who are facing uh, displacement. Um, Gentrification is a large issue in DC. And so I worked with tenants who were directly feeling that in their homes, either through poor conditions or rent increases or any other mechanism for them to be displaced. Um, When it comes to nonprofit as well, um, I've just been involved in a lot of direct service organizations. Um, and as well as serving on boards for uh, certain community centers such as the Potter's House, which was a cafe and a bookstore that really focused on supporting activists and social movements. And I just ended my tenure as the executive director at the Festival Center, which is another nonprofit in D.C. that provides space and material resources and political education for people involved in social movements. Um, Both the Potter's House and The festival center um were started with a very progressive christian faith component and so those were interesting spaces um and then i attended church which is you know i think a pretty cool congregation (laughs) um but yeah it has a very kind of strong emphasis on kind of social engagement especially around issues of homelessness
0: Mm. got it and do you want to say what you're doing next after
1: okay Yeah, um, so as I said, I just finished my tenure at the Festival Center, and my next step will be um, the Director of Homeless Outreach for an organization. So I will be working with the teams that do one-on-one outreach with homeless individuals in D.C., especially in the downtown area. Um, I'll be working with them to make sure that the individuals that they uh, encounter receive concrete material support, but also a thorough assessment of their vulnerability or risks and to see what services we can provide
0: got it um and do you want to say just a little bit about you, you i know i think we talked previously you go to a, a mainline church um but that's not how you grew up religiously is that correct
1: yeah that's not at all how i grew up um <laughs> yeah that's putting it nicely um i went to <laughs> i went to uh, an evangelical mega church growing up <clears throat> um and when I say mega church, it was, by the time I had left the area, the church had reached maybe 5,000 or plus members, and so it was just, it was a large <laughs> um, congregation, and I attended it for pretty much most of elementary through the end of high school.
0: And was it like a multi-ethnic church, or fairly homogenous, I'm kind of curious?
1: It actually is a very multi-ethnic church, right? Mm-hmm. So. Uh, growing up in, in sort of the Montgomery County area, it's a, actually a very diverse area, and the church itself reflected that. There were multiple sort of ethnicities and, and people and backgrounds that were present there, though most of the people on stage and the people, like the leadership, um, most of them tended to be white, but the congregation itself was pretty diverse. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and and its conservativeness, I would describe... Um not so much charismatic but much more uh sort of classic middle of the road evangelical so you know what didn't have a pentecostal or charismatic flair but much more um more dr james dobson (laughs) style um if if you're familiar with that the more focus on the family oh yeah
0: got it interesting so i uh, this kind of leads into kind of the one of the reasons i wanted to talk to you so i met jay um at a workshop that he was giving to other people at a conference called liberating evangelicalism and you gave uh, a pretty fascinating uh co- talk on the ways in which uh, this is my summary of it um you kind of compared a couple of books um one book on the i think it was the indebted man and then you also compared that to jonathan Edwards' sermon centers and, and god and kind of make this interesting sociological point about um the ways in which evangelical christianity creates uh soul conditions that are amenable towards the system of capitalism
1: yeah yeah
0: am I, am I wrong in my summaries just correct me if i if i am
1: yeah i, I think you did a good job to be honest it was a very uh <laughs> <laughs> that was my first time giving a presentation at uh, at any conference at all and so i was hoping my thesis uh, hung together well so <laughs> it sounded like it did so <laughs> <laughs> okay do you want
0: to just kind of spend a little bit of time just hanging on taking people through well maybe let's just start with like what got you interested in this book and then these these questions
1: yeah well you yeah, know i number one i read and i love to read and through kind of common friends they say jay this book is incredible it's such a great take so i read making of the indebted man um and it's something that I read, you know, maybe four years ago, but I think its its main thrust kind of stuck with me. Um, and I think what is so interesting about that text is that it does speak about capitalism and it speaks about late capitalism, what we call neoliberalism. Um, and, you know, I think many times there's an assessment of capitalism in terms of, you know, the devastation that it causes and the oppression and inequalities that it perpetuates. And then there's also an analysis of capitalism in terms of its the way it creates political corruption, right so the way that capitalism influences political systems and organizations um you know you can think of like campaign fi- finance as being one of those things um, mm. but but this book, what I think is distinct about it, is that it talked about the morals and the sense of self that ca- that comes with capitalism as well so okay. I felt like this was a different layer because it touched on the question of what kind of people does capitalism make us into?
0: Got it. And,
1: and I think that was unique, right? Because um, I don't think we always think about capitalism as carrying with it a sense of, of, mor- of morality and a sense of values. And, um, you know, we don't always think of capitalism as somehow shaping our inner life.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah. That- only person I'm really familiar who does something like that is um you know Weber's Protestant work ethic and that kind of convergence is would you say this is kind of like an updated version in some ways but in that tradition and maybe say a little bit about who it's by and that person's know, background yeah. if if you know it no worries if you don't
1: yeah I just know very little but but uh the person's name is and I'm terrible with pronouncing names but Maurizio Lazzarato okay. um he is yeah, sort of a uh, part of the autonomia um, sort of movement in Italy. So autonomia is a hybrid of Marxism and also anarchism. Um, okay. Yeah, so I just know that that's sort of his sort of uh, starting ground. And he draws a lot on Nietzsche, Foucault, and Deleuze and Guattari uh, for his writings. Um, I would say that this is kind of an update to Jonathan... To, sorry, um the Protestant work ethic.
2: Okay. I would
1: say that it is slightly. I would say that my presentation was an attempt to make that update. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> to make the, that
0: theological connection for him.
1: Okay. Exactly right. Because the making of the indebted man did not necessarily draw out the theological implication, implications so clearly.
2: Mm, I but see. I
1: wanted to start putting those theological implications, kind of adding those to the text. And I think then what I was trying to do was to provide that updated Protestant work ethic.
0: Okay, so what would you say are the uh, your your what you said reminded me of um from the one first interviews we did with Reverend Andrew Wilkes? He talks about how capitalism has a spiritual formation plan. So if mm-hmm. I would borrow his phrase, like what would you say is the spiritual formation agenda of
1: capitalism? Uh, yeah, I. A spiritual formation plan for capitalism. <laughs> no,
0: it's... No, maybe that's just my language. Feel free to use. No. I think you use the word, word, morals and sense of self. So
1: yeah, no, this is great. I mean I think the proliferation of, of of terms is actually very helpful. Um so my my sense here is that and drawing on Lazerato's work, is that the sense of the The spiritual formation plan that capitalism creates for us is that it makes us amenable to certain conditions. It naturalizes certain conditions, and for Lazaro, those conditions are debt and precarity. So, you know, think right now how you know social safety nets are being eroded, right? Um, think how wages are stagnant, how healthcare is completely, um, you know, there's no universal healthcare, and it's so difficult to obtain um you know that this the spiritual formation plan for capitalism is well in the midst of all of that um <laughs> you know this kind of rests on your shoulders and do what you can to cope
2: <laughs>
1: mm. right and so i think that's where you know um things that probably had a better root, like mindfulness probably had like a better root somewhere else you know that's not a bad practice but sometimes that can be used to cover over the fact that these are actually um systemic conditions that are intolerable but mm-hmm. i think capitalism creates that's what is that term you use? spiritual formation plan yeah right? yeah the spiritual formation plan for capitalism is don't look at the systemic injustices but find your way to cope with them <laughs> you right. know um and i think that's what it is that the spiritual formation plan for capitalism is get comfortable with living precariously get comfortable with the fact that You that your life is affected by the loss that your life fluctuates according to the whims of people who are hoarding wealth at the top. Um, get used to the fact that your wages are stagnant and that you have you know they have crushing debt and student loans, just you know, (laughs) find a way to accept that situation. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I think that's its spiritual formation plan.
0: Yeah, I, I once was, um Speaking of conferences, at a different conference in which um, this Franciscan priest, um, I think his name is Richard. His name is Richard Rohr. He talks yeah. about um, how an idol is a thing that we take so much, we it's so widely accepted that no one questions <laughs> it. Actually, no, that wasn't his definition of idol. It was his definition of a demonic stronghold, something like that.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and I you know I, I run a you know small group for my church, uh, which is like a small group of people who meet and like pray and discuss the Bible and scripture and theology. and we always do like prayer requests and it always strikes me how the themes that you're mentioning, precarity, debt um, is just such a common theme in what people uh, ask prayer about mm-hmm. like stress at my job, uh, my landlord raised my rent and right i mean it's hard obviously to take the time to step back and analyze your current situation and through like a larger political lens but i don't know if pastors helping congregants do that um yeah. but they're often framed as like can you help pray for my stress you know oh can can you help me move apartments because my rent is too high and now i can't afford to live there um yeah. so the church is very good at helping people with this sort of interpersonal like let's all pitch in and help so-and-so move or let's yeah like help this person pray with stress from abusive boss right? Um, and like maybe help them edit resumes. But in terms of helping people connect the dots to this larger force that is normalizing us to uh, absurdly stressful life, uh, that that step is, I don't see a lot of pastors or spiritual leaders make.
1: Right. Right. I absolutely agree. Um, yeah. And I think that there is a way to do that, to make that step, but it's, It's a difficult one. It's not one that I see very often. Um, Yeah, and I think that, you know, um, part of that accepting (laughs) of precarity, that sort of accepting of being in a state of debt, being in a perpetual state of alarm and difficulty um, and uncertainty, um, comes with this romanticizing of volunteerism, (laughs) you know? Interesting. Okay, well, tell me about
0: that.
1: Yeah, that it's so, you know, it's, you know, so when can have, um, what do they call this, like, oh, I forgot I the name for it, too, but um, what I mean by the romanticizing of poverty is just that this is something that, you know, a congregation might come together and help someone pay their rent, right? Mm-hmm. And no doubt you're going to see this as a headline in a newspaper, you know, some, like, optimistic, you know, look at the world's not so bad, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, this thing can happen where people band together and they help each other out, and uh-huh. it actually... Oh,
0: what? <laughs> no, I, was, I, I understand what you mean, meant now by volunteerism. Okay.
1: Yeah, Or and, and, you know, maybe volunteerism's not the best word, but this sort of glorifying of people who help each other in times of struggle or someone who you know, finds their own way in a time of struggle. And that's so great. You know, there's yes, I remember,
0: me campaigns that circulate social media to pay for someone's health care bills or something like that.
1: Yeah. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. You know, and churches can fall into that as well. And I want to, I'm not going to say that those are entirely awful, but they are partially misguided, I think, mm. if they don't a company, a critique of the situations that made that GoFundMe page necessary. Yep. You know? So yep. I think, yeah, I think that's, that's part of it. And so, you know, with my anarchist sympathies, uh, you know, I, I think it's great when communities work together to solve their own problems, right? Sure. I think it's wonderful when people recognize that they have a certain power and capacity in the and the resources and the materials around them and in the, and, and one another. Um, but that shouldn't that should be part of a larger project of resistance and that should be a larger project of critique and Mm -hmm. recognizing that the situation that called for us to band together shouldn't have happened in the first place and that there are people to hold accountable Mm. for the situation in which we're finding ourselves needing to band together does that make sense
0: yes that makes sense and it sounds like at least from my memory of your the presentation you gave part of his larger project resistance involves um churches examining their own theology potentially around right. spiritual debt I'll, I'll let you take it from there i don't know oh
1: okay <laughs> oh wow that's actually a broad one <laughs> churches examining their own theology wow and that practice of resistance <laughs> um
0: <laughs> well you know you this is the, the time for you to talk about jonathan edwards <laughs> uh, I see, God. Gotcha. <laughs> if that makes sense. But, you know, like the churches have a, a certain kind of complicity in all of this, not just in a material sense, um, but also in terms of uh, the ways in which their theologies might create certain conditions that normalize this entire project. But
2: yeah,
1: yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, so, you know, kind of going back to the presentation, and as I said, I spoke about making a the indebted man and I tried to read that alongside Jonathan Edwards um, sinners in the hands of an angry God have you have you read that sermon
0: um a long time ago but I'm familiar with the, the major points yes
1: yeah I I was I hadn't read it prior to preparing for the conference and I had an idea what it was about um and I figured number one that I wanted to read this sermon alongside making of the indebted man because Jonathan Edwards and and others were part of the Great Revival. that uh, sorry, the Great Awakening, which mm-hmm. was a revival in early seventeen hundreds, and in many ways is seen as the starting point for American evangelicalism. Um, and so I said, it'll be interesting to read such a famous sermon from someone who was part of shaping e- American evangelicalism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and you know. It would be an understatement to say that it was a very sickening experience <laughs> <laughs> um, that it, it's, it's a sermon that's not for the not for the faint of heart and so getting to the theology aspect you know what I see what I saw in Jonathan Edwards sermon and what I and the way it kind of dovetails with making him the dead and man is I see a theology where there's an image of God as someone who someone who looks out sovereignly over all people and especially your life and has every justification (laughs) to, um, you know, to to throw you into hell, right? So you're kind of sitting there in the hands, right, of this angry God. You know, he looks down and there's no reason for God to keep you in existence one minute longer. And there's something about even just your very existence that's already off-putting to God. And so there's this precarity um, to living because God has no reason to keep you alive and out of hell and to keep you out of eternal torment. Um, But obviously the good news that's implied in the sermon is that if you believe in Jesus, then you will be saved, right? Mm -hmm. My concern is that that sort of image starts off so first of all with a god world relationship in which we are precarious right so it kind of mimics the precarity that uh lazarato mentions and talks about in his book we're precarious because we're hanging over the pit of hell i mean he even talks about it as though we're, you know hanging over this very kind of rotted through piece of cloth that that's what we're walk. that's what we're walking on and a hole could rip at any moment you know um and so it's a theology that kind of naturalizes that to say that that's our starting point. That's our condition. That's the way God relates to us. God hangs us and dangles us, um, over, over a certain death, you know, and that's just the way it is. Now you can save yourself from it with repentance <laughs> or sorry, actually, I think for Jonathan Edwards, God could save you through electing you.
2: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> um, his more reformed theology. Um, but that's not the natural state. And I think for the same thing for Making of an Indebted Man and for that assessment of capitalism, that we tend to just believe that, of course, I'm gonna sit here and struggle to save enough money for retirement. Of course, I'm gonna struggle to make ends meet. Hustling is now something almost glorified. I hustle all the time. I'm working more than 40 hours a week, as though that's a good thing, as though it's just a natural thing. And it's not, and it shouldn't be. But I think that a theology like what we find in Jonathan Edwards is some is one that sort of naturalizes our living on the edge and like living with uncertainty. Um, and, and I think that that sort of state of being this kind of this feeble creature in the hands of this almighty God who at any moment could throw you into torment is also a state of debt then. You know, our lives are pretty much made emptied of any meaning. <laughs> you know, and, and already owed to this being that looks out on us and, you know, tries to determine our value and our worth. And <laughs> and oh, yeah. here we are just, you know, trying to figure out a way not to like slip off, you know, into, you know, eternal torment. Does that make sense?
0: No, it makes complete sense. I, you know, I, I was just thinking about how I what you grew up also grew up um, evangelical and um, you know hearing sermons from pastors yeah. such as my dad saying uh, my dad's a pastor but saying stuff like Jesus died for you so you owe him your entire
2: life oh, oh yeah and then I was
0: like I, you know one pushback to that is like I never asked him to die for me so no. why did I automatically owe my entire life towards this figure but I you know what's interesting also is you know you're talking about In some ways there's normalization of life as a struggle in all arenas, whether it's spiritual arena, you gotta like keep in the good graces of God, Um, you know, the workplace, gotta make sure your boss doesn't fire you, if not, there goes your healthcare, there goes this. Um, And also, I'm thinking of it's also because of your line of work, uh, your landlord. Um, Gotta make sure, you know, I don't know how you even get in the good graces of your landlord, but (laughs) say you do something, so right. that, you know, they think you're a good tenant and that they're not gonna raise a rent, or they're like, Finally, we'll fix that thing, that hole in your wall that's been, you know, unfixed for however long. Right. Um, it's almost like God at least the what you're talking about in terms of fearing the what God could do to drop you off the edge of the precipice you're on reminds me a lot about um I've done some reporting on a bunch of tenant organizing stuff. It reminds me a lot of uh, mm-hmm. certain landlord-tenant relationships, but you can probably speak to that more if, if you think that's an apt kind of parallel. Um, also, there are many parallels you can draw, but that was one thing that kind of came to mind.
1: Yeah, Um. I, I would say that that's exactly right with a lot of landlord-tenant relationships, with a lot of employer-employee relationships, with a lot of relationships of inequality <laughs> um, all throughout. So, yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, b- before we even apply this to many other situations, I think that one concern that someone would say is, oh, well, what Jonathan Edwards says is atrocious, right? Mm. Uh, of, of course, I don't believe that. Um, or that's, that's a terrible thing to say when you read, the, when you read through a sermon. Um, but I think what he says explicitly is what many of us, many of us, is what many Christians and Americans believe implicitly. Mm. You know, so, you know, taking this now to the reality of, like, landlord-tenant law, we would say, well, no, that doesn't actually apply to the landlord-tenant relationship. Um, in D.C. especially, there are strong tenant rights that are there to protect tenants, especially rent control, and others that prevent landlords from being so callous and arbitrary in their relationships with tenants. But mm-hmm. well, I would say no. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> right? That that's not the case. And, you know, Jonathan Edwards says explicitly <laughs> what people refuse to actually believe is the actual relationship that capital is set up between um, unequal groups. Um, no, that's not the case. I mean, these tenant laws, they are on the books and sh- they are definitely stronger than many other parts of the country. But the capacity for landlords to get around them is is appalling. And the complicity of politicians and local government in enabling landlords to shirk their responsibility is also appalling right and so I think that part of the um, you know the ideology if you want to use it their ideology that that cover for class warfare um, is sometimes this belief in fairness that's not actually there just because it's on the books um just because we say that everyone's treated equally Um, we kind of forget how ingrained inequality actually is and how it still operates despite what we might say, um, you know, actually exists. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, yes. Um, I think you're talking about the ways in which we, uh, I kind of almost see what you're saying as we take the sort of legal laws on the books as um sufficient you know we're all the law gives us protection it protects, right. the weak, it protects the vulnerable yeah but if you ignore i think this this point was drove, dri- driven home to me when i was talking to a tenant um who successfully with her building like fought through actually going on a hunger strike um mm-hmm. to get back into their building um the, yeah. the standard thing of like I need to reconstruct this entire thing. It's so unsafe, so everyone needs to get out. And then obviously that, that took like months before um, it was actually rebuilt and they got to make sure that a landlord agreed to not increase the rent by a certain percentage. But she was just saying like, even if um, we won this particular lawsuit, right, we won the lawsuit that said our building is rent controlled and that you cannot just like evict us like that, um, he's just going to find another legal tactic
2: yeah. in two right. months
0: to get yeah. us out and able to fight all over again. Because at the end of the day, because of the way, and I guess it does come back to law on a certain le- level, because of the zoning laws around our area, they have every incentive to spend even millions of dollars to kick mm-hmm. us out because yeah. they yeah. can charge millions more. Right. And so okay. once that profit incentive is there, um, you know, it it can inspire all kinds of creativity (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Uh, that if we ignore that uh, and just just talk about these specific rights um you know you're kind of somewhat missing the bigger picture
1: right no absolutely right i mean yeah i think i think that's exactly right that number one the capacity for wealthy landlords to wear down tenants (laughs) Mm -hmm. and their efforts simply through filing frivolous lawsuits um Mm-hmm. And repeated lawsuits and new angles is, is difficult to combat. Um, you know, I think even in D.C. there was one property that I worked with where we organized the tenants to say that this rent increase um, that the landlord initiated was not, you know, was illegal. Um, and we were definitely right. And in fact, we won that argument. It took us over two years Mm. to get a ruling in the tenant's favor. So for two years, tenants had to pay a higher rent. And this is about 80% higher, an 80% rent increase. Um, yeah. And they had to pay an 80% rent increase for two years waiting for a hearing, um, waiting for um, a verdict on their case. And during that time, you can imagine there are people who are going to struggle to make ends meet. There are people who are going to struggle to pay that rent and mm-hmm. then fear being sued for eviction. Um, and the people that will feel that they have no option but to leave. And believe it or not, after those two years, even when the judge ruled in the favor of the tenants, the landlord simply refused to obey the judge's order. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. And so, so yeah. And so the only thing that the tenants had to do is to file, the only uh, resort is to file another lawsuit, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so all that to say that many times there are things on paper that make it seem as though the playing field is level. And I think that makes us forget how unequal the playing field actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
0: Do, I'm curious, do you, um, do you have a sense of, let, let me phrase it this way. There's a lot of interesting thing, things in uh, the book of Acts and yeah. you know, New Testament or Old Testament or Hebrew mm-hmm. Bible, Christian Bible, what have you, um, around how to understand property um is it communal is it private and it kind of has this like interesting mixed status i would say in scripture do you have any kind of i don't know do you have a theological <laughs> perspective on property or homes or
1: what have you or yeah um i i don't actually i don't <laughs> okay, have the- that's fine. yeah i don't have a theological uh, a fixed theological let me say that i don't have a fixed theological view on property or on homes and i you know i love the bible but I don't make any dreams that it's consistent in all things in all respects, (laughs) but I do think it is consistent in the fact that it does, that it never imagines private property the way that we understand private property today. Hmm. I think that is consistent in the Bible.
2: That's true. (laughs) That's
1: true. Yeah. That's what it does not imagine is a sense of people owning, um, you know, the, the, the resources for living and for meeting one's needs and, what should be communal goods um, and to simply accrue personal wealth from it um, that's that's not at all present in the Bible. Um, there are you know understandings of personal property in the Bible. I think oftentimes you know you, you mentioned acts, I think that's, those are examples of communal ownership. I do think that in kind of the Hebrew scriptures that there are certain places in the law where it describes um you know someone has a field and the field produces a harvest that you can reap the harvest but you should leave the edges unreaped for people who might be hungry and might be in need of food who pass by right
2: mm-hmm.
1: So you should leave the edges of your field sort of unreaped right um so it has a sense of, of personal property in some passages as well but even that personal property is not immune to the fundamental obligation and responsibility that we have to one another
0: yeah right so claim that someone can make on your property
1: exactly right that someone else can say this is mine (laughs) i need this and i'm gonna grab it you know that that is never um that's never closed off in the bible so you know there are places where there's personal property there's places where there's communal property and i think it changes a lot um but i think that that sort of yes the fact that someone in need always has a right to claim um, the resources in order to meet their needs. That's always there.
0: Got it. Um, I actually want to circle back real quick to the Jonathan Edwards point about charity, because I've always, um, I don't know if this will make the final cut. Maybe it's too obscure for, but for those who are interested in theology specifically Christian theology, um, the, one of the things I've always understood as a fundamental ideology that's part of capitalism is at least an ideology of meritocracy yeah. um, in which, you know, this person is wealthy because they worked hard and did the right things and this person's not wealthy and in jail because they were busy and endure, you know, what have you. And this false sense that I think we all buy into in some small way, even if if it's not always, um, you know, to varied degrees. And so I've always understood at least, um, the christian understanding of grace Mm -hmm. the idea that you are you know saved or what have you loved not by your own accomplishments but by the pure fact of your being or you know in some versions because you know there is some cosmic transaction that takes place that then makes you unconditionally loved regardless of what you do but the point is i guess you get at the outcome of grace um -hmm. and in some ways you, you could argue that edward's um theology particularly coming from a reformed tradition uh kind of, it seemed like it would set itself up well to critique capitalism but instead it sort of goes the other way i'm curious like why you feel like he takes a certain turn in the road one way but not the other way whether you could you sensed in his reading like there's one there's another way you can interpret all of this but he chooses to take to interpret it in this very particular way which ends up being like kind of harmful i don't know any is, this, is it, am i making
1: sense in this case yeah, it is. Um, you know, and I think, so. It, what I understand you're asking is <laughs> that there is a theology of grace where it says, hey, God does something for you that you did not deserve. Right. And Jonathan Edwards seems to take it in one direction that defends capitalism when he could have taken another direction that would thoroughly undermine and critique yes. capitalism. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, And the question is, why? Why does he do that? And you know, I oh,
0: I mean do you do you agree with my kind of the the oh, yeah. the road I've set up? Okay, you could turn left, you get this, turn right, yeah, you get
1: okay. absolutely so. Absolutely so. And so that's the that's the funny thing. I mean, being Lutheran, we're not too far from reformed, <laughs> but we're not it's reformed. True, true. <laughs> you know, um yeah, me being Lutheran, yeah. Uh I'm in a tradition that's not too far from the Reformed tradition, but we're not. And I love Augustine, right? And I'm sure Jonathan Edwards and Calvin, for example, you know, they love Augustine. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of socially and historically, uh, you know, I'm sure one could say a lot about early America and, you know, the sense of a frontier that's dangerous and full of people, unknown people, black and brown people, right, who are a danger to the stability of this new project. One could definitely go that down that road. I just don't have the resources to. Yeah, yeah. But I think theologically, I think, It is a fine distinction. It's a fine line and almost a matter of of emphasis that can transform it from being an anti from a capitalist supporting theology to an um, anti-capitalist, you know, theology. So I think that you're absolutely right right, that grace, as I understand it, as grace, as I understand it, is a thoroughly anti-capitalist concept. (laughs) Right, right. And to me, that's the heart of the Christian like message, mm. is this generosity from God that is entirely unmerited, that is entirely, um, has no regard for, for, you know, that's indifferent to all of our so- social differences and social standings and merits, right? Um, <laughs> and I think that that's absolutely true. I think it's such a radical idea, actually. Mm. Um, I think that one difference and it'd be interesting to trace this theologically but or historically but i feel as though sometimes a theologian like you know in this sort of tradition that emphasizes god's grace um they emphasize god's grace in the way in order to emphasize god's goodness is by emphasizing our undeservedness yes yes that makes sense
2: yeah
1: yeah and and i think that there's one way you, where you can do that where you kind of emphasize God's grace in order to, by emphasizing how much we don't deserve it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But then there's a slight move that can be made where one not deserving grace becomes your starting point rather than God's goodness. Does that make sense? Interesting. So, so I okay. Sorry. I You know, one example I was trying to think of um, about this recently was, you know, if someone's in, if you're in a relationship with a partner, and you say to your partner, "Oh, you are so sweet. You're so wonderful. I don't deserve you," right?
0: Yeah, that's
1: yeah, a that's very a great analogy. yeah. Oh, uh,
0: say that? like, that's a great analogy. I think I see where you're going.
1: Yeah, like that's a beautiful thing to say. Is you know, I you're wonderful. I don't deserve you, and it's it's a that sense of I don't deserve you is not in self hatred or self abasement. Yeah. Um, but it's actually a testament to just how good this person is that is in your life. And I think that many times that the' theology, like that's my way of reading Augustine and Luther, right? Mm. Um, whatever emphasis they might make on sinfulness. It's in light of God's goodness. Yes. I think that the reformed tradition and Jonathan Edwards makes that statement, I don't deserve you, into... <laughs> into like a factual universal point. <laughs> <laughs> so they take
0: you know, poetry so... and turn it into like uh, philosophy or something like
1: yeah yeah you know it's, it's as though instead of just saying to your partner I don't deserve you you go out on the street and say none of you deserve my partner <laughs> <laughs> you're all unworthy of their love."
0: yeah <laughs> yeah thank <laughs> so... you so much for even looking at me
1: yeah. Right, right. It was like, no, 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 no. You know, it's funny how the same language, I think, yeah. can actually be like, okay, that's really sweet. I see what you're saying. And yet the other person makes that a starting point. Um, and it's completely ruins what <laughs> was actually a very beautiful sentiment.
0: Yes. Yes. Wow. That is, I've never thought about that kind of analogy you use and talking about the undeservingness and the ways in which yeah it can be used in a completely affirmative uh mutually affirmative way to express yeah. love, or you know kind of phrased in a very punitive legalistic context which obviously we see play out in very real ways in our country
1: right okay yeah and i think so then i think a lot of the the language then that might come around from that tradition that emphasizes sort of God's goodness first. (laughs) You know, that when we then want to talk about sin or being a sinner or sinfulness, when I think it's most healthy is when we recognize that this is something that we can talk about because of a fundamental goodness, that this is even a testament to that goodness, is that we can be honest with ourselves or we can honestly look at the world Mm -hmm. without needing to kind of wash over the violence or the injustice that's there. We don't have to make the world good enough to present it to God. We don't have to ourselves be good enough to be present before God, but we can, you know, we can look at ourselves with that same sort of, oh, love, I don't, you know, you're so wonderful, I don't deserve you.
0: (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. No, this is is very helpful. And um, I'm sure there, we might have some, probably have some reformed listeners. Uh, (laughs) If you're out there listening to this, Hopefully you're not too offended, but I, I yeah. trust you'll agree with the spirit of what Jay is saying. I know we all, we all have our particular traditions, yeah, okay. but got it. And I also wanted to um, kind of talk a little bit about the, let me try to think about the best way of fr- framing this. But you kind of sit in, in an interesting position between um, kind of political organizing, direct service, and then kind of religious faith spaces and obviously there's a venn diagram between all of these three things that you know and you understand um and from also prior conversations that we've had um you also in some ways through various kind of identities and experiences like where you grew up where your parents are from sit in the middle of a lot of different circles um you kind of flit around How does that feel like for you?
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, it's... Oh, wow. it's. I'm not going to say it feels great. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's... I feel as though, oh, okay, this helps me have a certain perspective. Mm. Um, But not one that always coheres, right? I feel as though I'm always trying to weave things together. And you know, make something work, put puzzle pieces together that I haven't seen put together yet, or looking for examples of them put together, but um, yeah, so I feel as though I'm, I'm stitching, t- I feel as though my life is stitching together these different identities So I'm not sure what it's going to look like at the end, um, but yeah, so it looks it looks creative, it looks dynamic, it looks probably contradictory, and, and that's me.
0: No, for sure, I, I think I, I ask partly because I can relate. Like, people ask me, you know, I do some work in, like, the LGBTQ um, and also LGBTQ Christian spaces, and I do, you know, this podcast that's, like, socialism and religion. Um, and obviously there's an underlying theme of religion throughout, throughout a bunch of stuff, but sometimes people ask me, like, so how does all these things come together for you? You know, uh, talking about race, talking about capitalism, talking about queerness, and some people sometimes expect me to be an expert in, like, weaving all these themes together for them Mm, like surely you can provide you know such and such perspective on this i'm like okay yeah i just need to like go back and like spend some time in my head and like read some books and then come back to you but sometimes (laughs) i am just operating out of different parts of myself and maybe when i get older i'll make them coherent but yeah i don't know that's why partly i asked you
1: yeah no i I think it's a very similar experience as well (laughs)
0: yeah but, but but I think the benefit is that you you is that we have I think a certain queer perspective on these issues um, right. we, we don't see things from the middle but from the outside kind of bringing things in together, and I know you have some interesting thoughts on like what queerness means for you mm-hmm. and just maybe politically um yeah and, and I'm curious if you want if you want to take my bait and <laughs> say something yeah
2: <laughs> <slides>. <laughs> um. Yeah,
1: I think, you know, I'm trying to think if I should just start with where queerness is because I think that it is a little autobiographical, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't want to just drop a definition without some sort of context. Um, But as as you mentioned, you know, occupying multiple spaces, I think what you're referring to is, um, you know, for me, I am the child of Jamaican immigrants, and so I am the only one who's born here in the United States. And grew up outside of D.C. and Maryland. And, um, yeah, for me, it was always, there was much of my life that I think was lived in multiple spaces, right? So at home, I had parents that are very much, you know, proud Jamaicans there, and my brother as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But then growing up in the area where I did, which was diverse, but still a predominantly white area, you know? Um, you know, you kind of have to navigate both of those worlds, one at school and one at home. Um, but then, you know, even though I'm Black, that I think that there was a way that I didn't immediately connect with people that were Black and grew up in America, right? Right. Um, so I think that there was sort of this not immediate sense of... of um, Sorry, yeah, there wasn't sort of immediate sense of uh, of, communi- of community there. And so I felt as though I was kind of stuck between those three worlds, kind of a predominantly white world, um, you know, a Jamaican home. <laughs> mm. And yeah, and not feeling as though I kind of fit exactly within black communities here in the States. So yeah, I kind of had to navigate those. And then Yes, being gay on top of it. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yep. Um, go ahead. I was going to say your your social network must look very interesting. I beg your pardon. I was going to say your your social network, your friend groups. Uh, yeah. When people come together for your birthday parties or something like that uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it must be it may be stressful for you to figure out how everyone get along
1: <laughs> well, I mean at this point, you know, I think part of queerness is that you can kind of choose your friends right I mean you don't you're not <laughs> you know you can decide you know what these are the people that truly care about me, um you know that term chosen family, so yeah. um yeah, so I think that's that actually helps some um so. Yeah, I wanted to get down to this, to this concept of queerness. Um, but for me, you know, I think we talked about this earlier. So, sorry, can I back up? Yeah, yeah, no, we're talking, okay. yes, And yes. I forget that this is all going to be edited, so I'm, like, overthinking things sometimes. <laughs>
0: yeah, I would say we, we don't do, like, a heavy edit, so... Uh, okay. But, yes, we will we'll try to clean things up a little bit.
1: Right. Yeah, so I give that sort of background, because I think, for me, this ongoing question of identity and of self has just been very important, you know? Um, and I don't want to say it as, like, finding my identity, but just the question of identity. Like, where do identities come from, right? Um, how do people become invested in their identities? How are they built? How are they formed? You know, what are the communities that, that build up around them? Um, so I think that that's just been a central question for me. You know, and I think that comes from sort of that experience growing up. Um, now when it comes to queerness, I think is because I think queer is an interesting word these days. Um, for me, I think queerness, I draw a lot of inspiration or understanding of queerness from Lee Edelman's book. Have you read uh, No Future? I have not. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a controversial book, but it was written in the early 2000s. Um, and it kind of, you know, says that queerness is just not an identity, you know? Queerness is almost a, a refusal of identity. It's what falls outside of identities. You know, it's, it's what... Um, yeah, queerness is... Queerness is, is pretty much the refusal of, of identity. Interesting. Um, yeah. And to me, that actually really struck with me <laughs> very much. <laughs> so, um, because I think that many times... What I I see, again, this is rooted autobiographically for me, but I see a deep investment in identities and the communities that are built up around them. And there's this sort of romance of like, oh, this is my community, right? My nation, my language, my people, my culture, um, my this place, my that place. Um, But we don't always look at the exclusionary side of it. You know, you can't have a community without having the, the lines that are drawn around it that exclude, mm. you know, and who draws those lines are, you know, are political. Um, and so for me, I think of queerness as the very thing that sort of puts communities and identities in question, right? right. It's, it's what disrupts identities. It, does, it disrupts communities.
0: Hmm. Sorry, I'm just writing all this down. So you're talking about is as a not so much a static adjective you know i am queer you are queer we are queer but as a active verb almost like a thing that does things to communities and identities
1: yeah i would say that right it's a it's an operation that that happens or an event that happens that opens up communities and opens up identities to these outsides that have been excluded Hmm um does that make sense
0: yeah yep yeah, that makes sense
1: yeah um and i know that sounds a little abstract but i think it i think it happens i mean i think it happens when you know actually no i'll i'll, I'll let it i'll let you go on sorry
0: no f- feel free to finish your thought no worries
1: yeah um give me a moment then
0: okay we'll take your time
1: yeah Well, yeah, I guess what I want to say is that we have communities that we're invested in. And I think that queerness is what disrupts those communities, that sense of um, security and, you know, and closeness that they have, you know? Um, You know, I think many of us have coming out stories, right? (laughs) And part of those coming out stories is when we came out to our family members, right? And those are always... Stories that in LGBTQ communities we, like, share with one another, like, oh, this is what happened. This is how my parents or my siblings responded, right? And um, some of those are good stories, but some of them are difficult, right? Because those families experienced a disruption, a disruption to who they thought their families were, right? A disruption to who they thought their child was, and suddenly they're kind of thrown back. Um, But I think that that sort of disruption is exactly... Is, is queerness, right? That suddenly the family's exposed to something that they thought they were insulated from. Um, and I think that's where, like, queerness sort of erupts into communities, erupts into, into spaces that thought they were closed off and that they were self-contained, but they really weren't. Does that make sense?
0: Interesting. Yes, yes. Erupting. And in some ways, in that eruption, there is a creation of something new. Uh, yeah. It's not... Uh disruption for disruption's sake, or uh, right. you know in order, going back to some of the earlier themes of precarity and mm-hmm. you know instability, queerness is a kind of unstable force right um, kind of inherently, but it does so in a way that's ultimately i feel like generative or creative to create new connections uh new new kinds of maybe models of cre- community and you new know, models of family what have you
1: oh absolutely right, and this is where I mean. <laughs> To me, I think of the gospel as thorough like mm. as thoroughly queer, right? So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, there's you know, maybe you're familiar with this yourself, but do, there are passages throughout the Gospels that where Jesus just kinda rails on the family. <laughs> Have he you just, noticed this?
0: It's a very anti nuclear family. <laughs>
1: He's
0: very anti-biological
1: family. Oh, yeah, absolutely, right? So Jesus is like thoroughly anti-biological family, you know? And I always find that in churches, they kind of skip over this, even if it's part of the lectionary for that day. Somehow they just don't talk about the fact that Jesus is (laughs) (laughs) anti-family, you know? And I think that's exactly where some of that queerness is, right? (laughs) Is where Jesus says, listen, like, this isn't about reinforcing these social arrangements that you already invested in. These social arrangements that keep goods within a small, tight-knit community, right? Or, like, keep identities or bloodlines pure within a small, tight-knit community or property inherited around these small, you know, predictable tracks, right? Um, He's entirely anti-family and calls people out of social arrangements in order to enter a new social arrangement that's thoroughly egalitarian you know, and, you know, and non-hierarchical and, you know, completely rid of domination and exploitation. Um, and so that's where I think that that's where queerness, for me, I think intersects even with the Gospels a lot, that, you know, that these units, especially the family unit, um, <laughs> these units where people sort of develop these concepts of gender and, um and different sorts of identities because they find themselves in certain positions in relation to each other. Um, the, again, the family, for example. I think Jesus calls us out of those.
0: Mm. Yeah, and this kind of brings us right back to kind of where we started in terms of, we started talking about unequal relationships, whether it's, you know, landlord, tenant, employer, employee, and you can understand the family as a way, an enabler of a certain kind of inequality where right. You protect your own, your clan, your tribe. You know, if you think about just different tribes, who's in, and who's out, there's right. the family, there's the capitalist class, you know, there's the, um, well, that's basically mostly it. Um, but, and then, and then what you're talking about then is figuring out a way of disrupting, in some ways, boundaries of exclusion.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. Okay. Right. And and it's not simply exclusion. I mean, interrupting boundaries of exclusion, um, which someone might say, oh, that just sounds very, you know, romantic and, you know, beautiful because everyone should be included. Mm-hmm. But it's also interrupting the ways that property and goods and yes. love and resources are held within those units.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, um, I just think about my, like, you know, grandma and grandparents like the sort of those like classic stories of immigrants and just very hard-working and will like die and do anything for a family but and will like sacrifice everything for families but like will not bat an eye if it was someone outside of it and it's like how can someone be so loving and sacrificial way towards but only to a very finite number of people um yeah i mean it's it's i think what what you're talking about just in calling out the materialist strand of inclusivity. Mm-hmm. Inclusive is not just about I mean, obviously it'd be good to not say any hate words and use people's pronouns and right. Um,
2: right. Mm-hmm.
0: have like a you know, whatever, diverse representation. But I think also it's about examining distribution of power and resources and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. Um and you know, this to me is is you know, central to capitalism. You know, yes, <laughs> that, um yes. You know, uh, you know, because I do think that this is part of the anti-capitalist struggle. And many times, you know, people think of capitalism in terms of, you know, that sort of exploitation and the finances that's there. But it also comes with a certain social arrangement, and mm-hmm. a social arrangement that says that this is who's entitled or expected to gain wealth, and you know, and accrue and accrue and accumulate wealth. And these are the lives that are able to be traded for wealth, right? And that's a social arrangement. And so I think that the gospel interrupts that with a very queer concept that says, no, <laughs> like come out of those social arrangements, come out of white supremacy, come out of your you know, benef- benefiting from patriarchy, come out of being the employer, come out of your privileges and enter this new space that's thoroughly egalitarian.
0: Yeah. When you say social arrangements, are you referring particularly towards like racial identities or gender, you know, mm-hmm. to, and we I, say I would, this is who is expected to gain wealth? Just curious, like what, elaborate a little bit more on that. Yeah,
1: I would say all of those. I mean, you know, I think of, you know, I think in when I say social arrangements, let's just think in terms of, of, of race for a moment. You know, I think part of what, when we understand whiteness um, if we all agree that race is a social construction <laughs> and a mm. historical construction, um, a big part of whiteness is it's A big part of whiteness is the presumed sort of access and protection by the state and the entitlement to gain wealth and have that wealth protected by the state. Mm. Right? And especially in kind of the history of the. US. Um, you know, obtaining land and owning land, which you know white people were entitled to do, came at the cost of genocide of indigenous peoples, right? And that land was then used as raw materials and worked by Africans who were enslaved. So, you know, so there's a social arrangement in which indigenous peoples were, according to this narrative of white supremacy meant to disappear from land <laughs> and black bodies and black people were, were meant to be a means for producing wealth and the white people were meant to own it. <laughs> yep. and to accumulate it. Right.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and so, you know, when we think of capitalism, capitalism comes with certain social arrangements in order for the wealth to be produ- produced and who's supposed to have it and whose lives are dispensable for creating it. So I yep. think that when we start to disrupt even social arrangements, we're disrupting capitalism as as well.
0: You are very concise and articulate. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's helpful. um, It's helpful in podcasts to have people be able to frame things in very clear ways. And I think, yes, what you're talking about, just even the way you laid out how land is the central force, and then it's a question about, you know, who has to make way for it, who owns it, who has to work it to extract value from it. Um, you could apply that lens to where it's looking at so many other things in our society. Um, you know, whether it's land, whether it's um, buildings, factories, mm-hmm. office mm-hmm. equipment, and now you know, obviously, now we get into the realm of like intellectual property and who owns my brain when I go into work, what have you. Um, is yeah, and at level.
1: And I'd even say this extends <laughs> even to gender as well. Like mm-hmm. what roles. Um, You know, again, if we understand that gender is a construction, that gender is not simply an identity that someone has, but a position within a whole complex of, yeah, of relationships to family and reproduction and producing goods. And yeah, I mean, the whole dynamic reemerges when it's expected that women and cis women uh, is what they have in mind, um, are the ones who are raising children, right? And are doing so without pay or compensation, (laughs) you know, and men are supposed to go out there and produce and produce culture or produce creatively. Um, yeah, these are just, yeah, these are all gendered positions. Yes. That whole social arrangement is there. Um, and I think is a big support, um, kind of an infrastructure, like a larger support for capitalism.
0: Right. Who takes care of things so that the landowner can, you know, go about his work, but also who, Produces the heirs for the landowners. Right, um, you need to have children for property to be passed down in your exactly. bloodline, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And this is where you know, I guess, cis women have come in. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's a spot. Okay, this is fascinating thank you so much um for offering like really a wide array of insightful thoughts on really a wide array of topics and being game to just bounce around as like push and prod you in different directions Yeah, no problem no problem is there any final thing you felt like oh i wish i said this but you know any final things you want to say kind of on just to give you a space to say say anything
1: yeah um because I think I started out a little rough, you know, around queerness. Um, And and I think because I've thought about queerness a lot, but I don't like thinking of queerness outside of this larger concept of social arrangements, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I kind of, it's, you know, many times when queerness, when queer is used today as as an identity marker, and I'm guilty of doing it from time to time because sometimes it's shorthand. Um, sometimes it kind of means something, but yeah, I think it just it, it makes when queer is used as an identity, I think it just recreates this idea of there being an in-group and an out-group and it being part of a certain social arrangement and I think queer ha- I think queerness has a better and a more powerful force when mm-hmm. it's understood as the disruption of social arrangements yes. you know, when when queerness is understood as something that breaks apart all of these boundaries upon which exploitation and exclusion and violence and wealth accumulation are are being built. Um, Because I think that queerness is something that, you know, when it's made into an identity, it's just easy to co-opt, you know, and capitalism is happy to co-opt any and every identity that we put out there no matter how radical we think it is, you know? you know, queerness has to has to be more than that, um, if it's to have any sort of sort of resistance to it too uh, anymore. Yeah,
0: that's very beautifully put. Thank you, Jay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um,
1: yeah.
0: No, thanks okay. so much for making time. Really appreciate you.
1: Yeah. Um, the other parts that I actually I wanted to say a few more things.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Is uh, you know, I think when we talked earlier we had this interesting conversation of i guess my relationship to christianity as well as to sort of social movements mm-hmm. right okay. um and you know there's this question i think you know after we had uh after my presentation yesterday you asked me about um i think my approach to the topic of capitalism and religion and i think your question was there are some people who ground their sort of leftist commitments or their progressive or justice-seeking commitments in their religion right
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um and kind of operate out of their religious tradition does that make sense yes yes okay right right and uh and yeah and i think I, i think i know what you mean i think of people um who You know they come to a sense of you know resisting oppression and fighting for justice out of their understanding of christianity and out of their understanding of the bible and i think that that that's something that did occur for me during um during undergraduate so um i think that was a big time for being activated so to say for me was during my undergraduate studies um when i was a freshman was uh, sorry, during my freshman year, um, that was the same time that the U.S. Uh, Bush's regime at that point uh, was planning to uh, initiate the war in Iraq in 2003. And so the anti-war movement started, and that was part of my being activated into social <laughs> into social activism and social movements back then. And that, that definitely... did come out of an understanding of a growing at that point a growing understanding of the Bible and the gospel. Um,
0: And was it was it the fact that there were a lot of Christians involved in the anti-war movement or was it just more like like how did the connection with your faith kind of yeah
1: well the school that I went to was an Anabaptist school Um, so it's part of the Anabaptist tradition, which I didn't know what that was before I signed up for it.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah. Okay. That makes sense now.
1: Yeah. And in no way is, you know, was the school, um, progressive or liberal by, you know, by most standards, but being part of the Anabaptist tradition, it's part of what's called the peace church tradition, which means that they are commit that they're pacifists, committed pacifists. And so, you know, despite its policies around, you know, LGBT inclusion on campus and a host of other things, the question of state violence, the question of war was something that the school always pushed us to to examine critically. And so when the Iraq war started um, there were student protests on campus and a lot of them Um, but it became a point of conversation and wrestling for a lot of us Um, and so for me that I think was my introduction to sort of bridging my Christian faith with, um, yeah, with sort of like social realities, right, and and state violence and, yeah, and larger issues.
0: Okay, so did you go to a school that was explicitly like a Christian undergraduate college, or it just more like its roots were anabaptists?
1: No, it's an explicit Christian school. We had chapel and everything.
0: Uh, okay, okay. So now the connection makes sense. I just was, I was. <clears throat>
1: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, um, so yeah. It, it was Anabaptist, which took me by surprise, but was one of those things then that, you know, despite other conservative elements, that to me was a pretty radical idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, you know, by the, end of, by the end of my time there, I had become an anarchist and I'm still a committed one, even now. Wow, got
0: yeah. it. From Anabaptist to Anarchist.
2: Makes
0: yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. I often find that anarchism, from the little bit that I know about it, I feel like it's the closest political philosophy that the Gospels gesture towards or um, the writings in the New Testament. Right. Um, even more than a Marxist or even Socialist take. Yeah. I um, know. Anyway, maybe that's another conversation.
1: <laughs> i mean i i I agree with you but not at all to you know i love the marxist too, but i do agree with you
0: (laughs) yeah i mean sometimes i wish jesus was a bit more like revolutionary if that makes sense you know yeah but it seems that he was interested in cultivating like a kind of community that was revolutionary not necessarily like revolutionizing the entire society per se
1: yeah i think that's right yeah and maybe that's also just a product of his times, but yeah, I think that's right.
0: He was a dude, yeah, like the other dudes <laughs> that's right,
1: <laughs> you know you can only see so far or do so much, you know yeah yep. so yeah,
0: yeah he he couldn't predict when uh, his disciples would join him in heaven, so
1: no, so I mean, you know, <laughs> there are limits. <laughs> All right, Even being, this... uh walking around god man their limits <laughs>
0: <laughs> yep yep um i i will mention this in the intro, but you also went to divinity school, so that hopefully will explain to some of my listeners yeah. uh, the theological, some of the theological background you're coming from
1: yeah, yeah, so I studied Christian ministries in undergrad and then went to divinity school, so seven years total of studying uh-huh. theology yeah okay yeah, um the school that I went to um well. First to say that I loved what I studied in undergrad and just said, I want to study it some more. Um, I didn't actually want to work in a church. That was not necessarily the first thing on my mind. But I knew that this was important to me. Mm -hmm. And it was the lens through which I was approaching, through which I was understanding not only myself, but trying to look at the world critically, was through theology. Um, So I did go to divinity school and that was an interesting experience. that was a school that was not necessarily um, political, not very politically left at all. <laughs> it was not very politically radical. It was very traditional and um, and really kind of clung to that tradition and was conservative in that sense. Does that, does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Do you want to say a bit more about what that tradition is or... Sure. Uh, I think most people Just, might know the schools you mentioned as well. If, if I come from a Christian background.
1: Yeah, it was. Oh, well, yeah. I went to Duke Divinity School, and you and know, your
0: undergrad he, Duke, was at which college?
1: Duke University.
0: Duke. For your undergrad, also Duke. Oh, okay.
1: Oh no, I'm sorry. Sorry, sorry. I'm messing this up. uh My graduate studies were at Duke University. Okay. Yeah, my okay. undergraduate studies were at Messiah College.
0: Messiah College. Oh, yes. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um and so at Duke, you know, I think it's a place that I enjoyed it because it was intellectually just rigorous, like academically rigorous environment. Um and I learned to appreciate tradition. And when I say tradition, it was a place that really honored early church fathers and sort of medieval <laughs> uh writers as well. And when I say fathers, that's you know, they really only studied men for the most part. <laughs> um so It was an environment in which that was really what was prized. There wasn't much talk around intersections of race or sexuality or, you know, economics on sort of a larger scale. So that was the environment. And on one hand, I learned a lot and I enjoyed it. And I learned to appreciate tradition a lot from it. I think that's why I prefer more liturgical services even now.
2: Mm.
1: Um, But on the other side, I think that I was pushed both to under both to understand what I was learning but then also to forge my own path once again um and in this time you know while I'm reading you know what's assigned for classes I'm also taking up my own books and reading those you know Mm. I'm you know finding people that are talking about topics that I find to be important and interesting um you know I'm engaged in interfaith dialogues while I was there um with the campus rabbi and also with the uh multicultural Devon center that was in Durham. So, um, yeah, I just tried to have to figure it out on my own and kind of do readings on the side. Um, but yeah, I came out, I think, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. it has gone through, I mean, I didn't, I didn't go there, but for my friends who have gone there and not, it seems like it's gone through a lot of changes.
1: Yeah. It's kind of, well, yeah, it's kind of gone through a lot of changes and a lot of, uh, even scandals. Um, Yep. You know, it's, you know, I think that there was a time when there was positive movement and then there have been, as my understanding, you know, kind of steps back recently. You know, it's not at all like union. You know, union is a place that is full of kind of activists. And I think at Duke I was growing into being an activist, but not in, an enviro- not in a, a school that necessarily promoted that.
0: Maybe in spite of rather than because of.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. I think oh, that's very
0: rough. maybe the school was a thing to organize against but yeah
1: and I think that actually has happened since I've left I think um students have been a lot more engaged in pushing the school and organizing to shift the culture at the school yeah
0: I often think that's one of the unintended benefits of campus organizing that isn't discussed a ton like
1: mm-hmm. there's a
0: lot of like hand-wringing over like oh students are so sensitive or like what do they care they're only there for four years like they should right. focus on a real world issues, something like that although obviously the academy is a very real world institution mm-hmm. but in addition That's to cool. that there is um uh, i think it, doing all that campus politics stuff although i do regret sinking too much of my time in that but it did teach me it was a place in which i for the first time i think was engaged as a civic person if that makes sense yeah so, That cared about the norms of a place, the history of a place, that understood the power structure of a certain place. uh, What were the steps to get from A to B to C? It was like a mini society, Um, and then that gives you a certain education and training for then a larger society to exit.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, Um, and I do want to say that campus life is the real world. I mean, anywhere there are real people involved in real conversations and having their lives impacted that's the real world right um and so yeah i think it is great when students do amazing work to push their to push the administration to push an institution in the right direction and even though they're there for four years like (laughs) all the better you know (laughs) um and i think many times students i don't know if they always realize it i'm not involved in student movements very much but um you know, they can say things that many that maybe their faculty can't, mm. you know, they have an opportunity to say things because they are paying to be there. And they aren't, you know, in some t- in some cases, they aren't as vulnerable as faculty who can get fired, um, for saying something. So even if during those four years, even if they're, they're brief, um, it's a time to, to fight for change.
0: That's a good encouragement to uh, any student activists listening. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Jate. This has been a very very enlightening conversation. I feel like you've able to string together a lot of different threads that um I usually talk about just one of those threads in an interview. Oh, um, <laughs> so I mean not always, but usually because most people yeah. that's what they care about the most. So thank you for being able for like putting everything together for 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 us.
1: Oh, thank you very much for uh, for inviting me. Um I've enjoyed this and yeah, thank you.
0: Yeah. Hope we get to chat some more in, in the future.
1: Yeah, I would like that. Please stay in touch. Yes, yes.
0: That would be great. And that was Jay Forth, a Theologian organizer and director of Homeless Outreach and a DC nonprofit. If you enjoyed that conversation, you should check out our other episodes um, or Religion and Socialism blog. And If you want to join or start in Religion and Socialism Working Group in your city, contact us at religioussocialism.org. Once again, you're listening to Religion and Socialism, a product of the DSA. This podcast was produced by Devin Brisky. I'm Sarah New. Music is by Hugo. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Patreon. Thank you so much for everyone who supports us by sharing our content, by giving financially. Everything you can give is much appreciated.